2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thank you, Cameron. We join me in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity that is before us that we could get in touch with our souls, find out our soul's true thirst. Father, peel back the layers, peel back uh, whatever is coming between ourselves and you. Help us to see a glorious, gracious God. Uh, be with us, Lord. Uh, we ask in, in these moments that you would not allow us to, uh, to not be, be given a sight of you and an, an understanding of you. Uh, be with us. Get, grant to us attentiveness. And uh, help me, Lord, as I seek to communicate your truth. Uh, it comes through uh, feeble uh, feet of clay. And I pray you'd uh, be among us with power, with grace, and uh, with your love. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it is a privilege to uh, continue through this, uh, this series called The Unfolding Mystery. If you are new with us, we are looking at points in the Bible where the person of Jesus is showing up and realizing that the whole of our Bible is needed to see uh, the whole of Jesus. Who is he? So that's what we're doing. We're looking at the unfolding mystery. And so I encourage you to, uh, to study these passages that we've been looking at on your own. Uh, we have a, a website where you can go and you can listen to the sermons again. Some of, some of our fellowship groups, our smaller groups, uh, small groups, uh, talk about the uh, sermon. And uh, I hope that that is a helpful thing to do if you could get a hold of the, the sermon on, on the, uh, the web, web page. Okay, so Psalm 2... Uh, did you get sort of the flow of it? There's an opening question, like, what are the nations thinking? Why do the people devise plans that aren't going to work? And then God responds, and the response is really a conversation with a king. And then there's a response of what does it look like to be wise toward God's king? So that's kind of how the flow of Psalm 2 goes. Why would, they, why would there be an insurrection? This is not going to work. God confirms why the insurrection will not work. And then God gives some really good advice. 
Now, I recognize I'm not speaking to people who are um, the heads of nations here, uh, but God is speaking to those who are rulers and leaders and uh, those who are planning, uh, have the ability to mobilize forces, and that's probably not you. But uh, you are probably someone who plans. Are you a planner? Are there, we, have, we have some planners out here. I, I, I see some hands raise, being raised. Um, planning is fun, isn't it? Why, when you start planning your fall, maybe you've already been talking with your, your families or uh, looking at your future. It's fun, isn't it? It's kind of fun to figure out something before it happens. And you, you sort of feel like you have a handle on it. Planning is, a, is an exciting adventure. Um, but planning is a place where we can also find some of our deepest resistance to the one who really does plan our lives. Uh, in planning, in setting an agenda for the future, uh, the Bible does affirm that. The book of Proverbs talks about the wisdom of planning. But it's actually in planning, in devising, in thinking about our future, what we want to have, what we ought to have, actually there's, there's a great potential of sin right there. And so this psalm is a reflection out loud on when God installs his king, people respond with, with planning, with, with a way to overthrow this, this new government of God. Um, Marianne and I uh, were in Australia in 1995, and we have an, uh, a family here from Perth, Australia. Where are you folks? Hi. Welcome, folks. Um, you live in a very remote place, Perth, Australia, and uh, we are grateful to have you joining us here today. And uh, my wife and I were in Sydney back in 1995, and Marianne found a very unique thing for us to do, to kayak in Sydney Harbor. So we were there in the off-season, so it was their winter, which is our summer, and um, she was able to talk this guy into giving us a, kind of a private tour of the harbor when, in fact, he doesn't usually do it for just a couple. He wants, you know, five or six couples, and so he's out there, so we're out there in, in, in Sydney Harbor, and I'm in a, like a 10-foot kayak. Now, there's a problem with kayaking in a world-class harbor. There are bigger ships out there than your little, fab- there are ocean-going cargo freighters out there, big steel-hulled giant ships. Now, when you look at them and you see, oh, isn't that nice? There's ships out there in the harbor and you're, you're from the shore. It's, it's a nice thing. But when you're in a 10-foot fiberglass kayak, these become massive. They become threatening. And the closer you get to them, the more you realize they don't care about you. They don't see you. They have no concern about you. It doesn't matter what you do. And uh, this is a... This is, uh, the perspective of this psalm is from the, the captain's viewpoint on the cargo ship. Looking down at someone who has, a, in a kayak with a BB gun. 
Okay. It's futile. It, it, is, it is a silly thing to go up against something that massive. It's terrifying. In fact, as I begin to realize, I am trusting this guy to know how to navigate this thing because we are getting really close to these big, big ships. And have you ever seen one of those where you can you, know, you get a feel for the, the, the wake and the wake was affecting us and it was, it was quite remarkable? Jesus is going to... Uh, assume the throne over God's kingdom, and he is going to be a powerful king. And this is a song that finds ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It's a song. It's a song of Israel. And it starts with an observation about anger and God's response to anger. And it concludes with some really good advice. And if you would like to have a short introduction to the doctrine of sin, it's right here in this passage. If you have a naive view of sin, if you're sort of a sentimental view of human nature, when you think of your children, there's this beautiful little self inside, and the less parenting, the better. If you have these ideas, well, I want to meet you about five or six years. If we live in a time of sentimental notions about human nature, sentimental uh, the idea that human beings just need good environments uh, to, and that does affect things, but you need just better education, a better environment, and you, they would not have turned out this way. Uh, there was a landmark article in the New York Times in 2004 entitled The Trouble with Self-Esteem. And it was a, a massive research project of uh, people who are incarcerated, who had committed crimes, and the common notion is that people who do crimes and felons and end up in prison, they have a lack of self-esteem. And they had a bad upbringing, and this all led to the things that they did. Now, there's certainly truth to, you know, environment does, does play a role. But as they inter- interviewed these, pe- these uh, people incarcerated they began to discover that they were willingly uh, admitting that it wasn't um, a lack of self-regard that caused them to do what they did. They were uh, prideful. They expected things out of others. They were demanding toward other people. They were controlling toward other people to the point that they committed some crime. It wasn't out of a lack of self-esteem. It was an over-esteem of who they thought they could be, should be, or, or what others should see them as. So this is a good introduction to the doctrine of depravity. Why do the nations, why do people rise up against God? And to understand your Bible... You, you can go through your Bible, and whenever God reveals his will through a prophet, um, through some other source, when that will is revealed, now you can watch how people respond. And uh, theologians call this antithesis. This means that there is an antithesis, a difference between God's mind and man's mind. This means that there is a man does what is resistant to God's revealed will. You can see this in Cain 
and Abel. You can see this in uh, God's instruction to those who ultimately built the Tower of Babel. They resisted God's will. You can see this throughout your Bible as it's unfolding, that there, as the Bible unfolds, there is more and more revelation given about man's sinful response. And the culmination of this is how people treated Jesus Christ. So if you're not convinced in the Old Testament about the human condition and our fallenness, you have only to read the gospel accounts and to watch how people respond to someone who did good, thought, uh, did, the, uh, did good toward people, uh, was holy, was right and just, and how people came after him. All right, so all that to say, the heart, is just by way of an outline, the heart of man is plotting, the, heaven, God, the God of heaven responds, and then there is uh, a concluding uh, couple of remarks about the rule of the sun. So the nations are raging. Why do they rage? Why do they plot in vain? And uh, because it's sort of a rhetorical question, not intending really to have an answer because it doesn't make sense for a kayak to think it can go up against a big cargo ship. No one needs to even talk about that any further because the idea is preposterous. So the idea here is that they're sort of muttering. The original language is sort of, why do the nations mutter among themselves? The rulers are plotting and they're sort of muttering. And Psalm 2 is about Yahweh which is a, a word for Lord. It's sort of our best attempt to explain a word in the Bible in the Old Testament that we're not 100% sure how to pronounce it. Yahweh, the Lord, and his installed king. And there is an insur- insurrection against this king. He is in Jerusalem. He's at the center of God's people. And he's the installed one. And people are coming after this Plan. In fact, in verse 3, it says, Let us uh, get up and burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. God's ruling king expresses something that is interpreted as enslavement, not freedom. Freedom is interpreted as being out from under God's lordship. This installment, this installed king is a threat to freedom. God's governance leads to slavery. He is not good. And letting this king stay installed will not lead to our freedom. And of course, the question is, will God relent? Will God let these these revolutionaries uh, get their way? And, of course, we find out that God will not relent. Will God show raw power? Will he just blow them away? What will he do? Well, he is going to install his king, and he refers to his king as his son. And the original here uh, is the idea that he has the anointed. Look at verse uh, 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the king. And then look at verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. And that can be translated, you are my son. And what a son. Meaning... 
You are my delight. I am not changing my opinion of you. You are going to stay installed. Let the rebels do what they want. You will still continue to reign. And of course, the rest of the psalm now tells us what God does. And he has us listen in on a conversation. Right? So the God of heaven responds by a conversation. He first uh, tells them uh, his attitude toward these rebels. Look at verse 4. Answer me when I call, oh, excuse me, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. God, uh, this may be uncomfortable for us to, to hear, God looks at these who are planning an insurrection and he laughs at them. It is a puny effort. It is not going to work. And then he expresses anger because they are rebelling. God responds by laughter and by judgment. Now we are brought into a conversation. Yahweh is going to talk to his installed king. And here's how it goes. Look at uh, verse 6. As for me, this is, do you see the quote marks there in verse 6? So this is Yahweh talking out loud. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, that would be the temple mount, my holy hill, the center of, of God's people in Jerusalem. I have set my king And then I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. Now, the son is now speaking back. The king is now speaking back. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Excuse me, that's that's Yahweh speaking to the son. You shall break them with a rod of iron, look at verse 9, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Wow, lots of affirmation about this son's ability to judge, to come in and like armies after the end of a war, to come and just sort of indiscriminately smash pots that are sitting on the open field, smashing these pots. Someone who is just has dominated their, their enemies. Someone has just come and they're, they're, they're part of the cleaning, cleaning up operation. But what God does is he lets us in on a conversation. It's a conversation between himself and his installed king. And what does God say? He says, I am not backing down on the decree to have you as the king. I will not back down. I will not give in to these who have these schemes. I will not let them win. Now, the New Testament comes along, and it interprets this conversation in terms of the Father speaking to the Son. And the Father speaks to the Son in a couple different places in the New Testament. We think of Matthew 3 when the Father is speaking to the Son and to all those who are gathered when Jesus is baptized. 
And the voice speaks from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And God is going to install his king. And then we have this conversation which is developed throughout the rest of the New Testament that the father is speaking to the son about his coronation day and I have installed you as my king. And the book of Acts picks up on this theme. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends into heaven and that is his day of coronation. He is the victor. He is the one who overcame the plots of men to destroy him and his kingdom. And he is, rises victorious and he is now installed in heaven, Lord of lords, king of kings. And so when the Bible says today... Referring to Jesus, today I have begotten you. Today I have made you this, this king. This is referring to that ascension of Jesus who is now reigning in heaven. And we are now ex- part of his reign. So Psalm 2 is ultimately fulfilled in the Son of God, the Father who was so pleased with him, the Son of God taking reign over his kingdom. He's taking reign over the heavenly Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem doesn't matter anymore. The old bricks and mortars there, brick and mortar there, that doesn't matter. It was knocked down by the Romans in 70 AD. That old temple, that's over. Jesus says that I am the new temple. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. So the new way has been opened up through the body of Jesus. And... God has foiled the plans of men. They wanted to be in control, but God has foiled their plans. It's hard for us to admit that our plans, well, in the end, they have to be brought about by God. It's hard for us to really pray the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done. We have lots of plans. We have ideas about our future and about our lives. It's hard for us to include a bigger story than our own story. And yet the Bible is continually inviting us to this larger, greater story. We are responding in our planning to how we've been wired. You've been made in the image of God. It's a good thing that you want to plan. In our planning, we are showing that we are lords of this earth. Fish don't plan. Dogs don't have calendars. You plan, and you have a calendar. And all of this is good. This is how you've been made. To plan, to design, to fabricate, to install, to build... You see what sin has done? Sin has taken all these beautiful abilities. And sin is now saying, but I can plan my own way. I can fabricate my own life. I can make my own utopia. I can bring this about. And who are you? And now in Jesus Christ, they have access to the God that they have never been able to reach. And here he is embodied in human flesh. 
and they come after him. No sentimental notions of the human condition will work here. No, we're not interested in receiving his lordship and his kingship, particularly when he tells us that even our good works, the things that we pride ourselves in, the things that we think God must accept, even those things that we feel were worthy of God's attention, worthy of God's merit, when Jesus comes along and says, no, you have to repent of those things as well. Surely we'll we'll repent of the bad things. But even our own righteousness, as Isaiah says, is as filthy rags. That was too much for the Pharisees. And I have to admit, it is hard for me, and I think I speak for you, it's hard for us to acknowledge that you mean all my plans fall short? You mean all my devices and all my my, my ingenious, clever pursuit of, of looking a certain way, you mean that, that falls short as well? Yep, it all falls short. And so, what does God give us? He doesn't give us, well, let me just put it the positive. He gives us a conversation between the Father and the Son for us to say, oh, it's here It's here that God can receive me. The son as king can protect me. You see, if you have a good king, it means that you as just a commoner, speaking like the British, you as just a commoner, you have someone who's looking out for your interests. A good king is a good thing. A good king is creating borders that are secure. A good king is allowing you to get on with the the needs of your family and your life. A good king provides you peace. You see, if God converts our hearts and changes our hearts, Jesus as king is not a threat. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's not easy to accept it, But it is a good thing. What does God give us? He gives us a conversation. And he says to the son, I will not back down. I have decreed that you will be my son and you will reign forever. And that is for the good. That is for the good of people. So now the the psalm wraps up. Now the psalm concludes. And it's kind of a nice, it's kind of a nice, Sort of, it's, kind of, it's kind of like an advice psalm. And I like how it's sort of understated a little bit because you, you just had this, this extraordinarily terrifying picture of God's ability to come and smash people like pots. And then, then they're sort of backing off of that and says, okay, now, have I got your attention? Is anybody drawn into this? Is anybody feeling the wake of the cargo ship? Anybody... anybody uh, Unsure of their little kayak? Now be wise. And here it is. Do something that feels really crazy. Go toward the cargo ship. Go right at it. And somehow, in some way, that cargo ship will receive you. And you'll be brought in. And all its steel will be for you. It will no longer be a threat against you. 
but you'll be brought in and its massive ability to protect will be for you. Listen to this. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And then a final benediction. Blessed, oh, here it is, be brought in, be brought into his strength. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. He's not a threat to you. He'll use all his strength for you. The psalmist now presents what does it look like to give homage to the king. No, no, no more, no more insurrections. No, bow, kiss the son. In the ancient world, they would kiss the feet. Give him homage. You were devising a vain thing. You were in on it. Do you know that his anger can be kindled against you quickly? So be informed that your plot doesn't work. And oh, don't our plots appear to work? I mean, when they went after Jesus and they crucified him and they... At the end of the day on, on Friday, I mean, what can be more certain than death? And you had this unholy alliance between the leaders of Israel and Rome. And you know what? For the sake of our own control desires, we'll work together. And death is always the final sentence. And we will show you who has the last word on this matter. And so the plot seems to work, and plots seem to work against the living God, as crazy as that sounds. So God foils the plan, and then he gives some good advice to this current age. Bow. Bow while you have opportunity. You see, the gospel... It's quite remarkable to watch the apostles preaching in the book of Acts. They're putting their lives on the line. And they don't back off the command to bow. Paul has an audience in Athens. And he talks in a very uh, thoughtful way of, of how to reach them. But he doesn't back down on the status of Jesus and that he he really is the Lord and the judge. And he's given you time. But there is an appointed time. This is Acts 17. And time is going to run out. And he really is the coronated king over all humanity, everyone. So let's, let's do a couple of takeaways here. First of all, how do we know that we get Psalm 2? First of all, think about how many prayers you start with this phrase, you alone, you alone. If we really got Psalm 2, Jesus King installed in heaven, I think more of our prayers would start with you alone. You alone know what is best. Look how clever you are. 
in the resurrection of your son. Look how mighty you are in what he accomplished. You alone. Think about that. It's a template for peace. I'm preaching to myself here. Todd, start more sentences with you alone. And just rest in this this massive promise of God that he is going to control all things. And then realize that under new management, life is not easy. We are under new management. And we still have suspicions about God's ability to manage things. Uh, There's a dynamic that's needed daily in our life, and that is that we cannot keep ourselves from the description of people in Psalm 2. It's important that we put ourselves in the crowd. When Jesus was on trial, there was an option to have one man set free, and the crowd cried out for Barabbas. Put yourself in that crowd and say to yourself, I would have cried out for Barabbas. Can you truly say in your heart, I would have, my, my clenched fist desire for the future is so raw and real that I would have been in the crowd wishing to put to death the one who is a threat to my plans. If you can say that, as hard as that is to say, you're actually on the road to taking refuge in Jesus Christ. Jesus, I'm not going to pretend, but I was in the crowd. And then, uh, really, the psalm is about foolishness versus wisdom. This is a wise way to live, and that is what? To continue worshiping Jesus Christ. It is really to experience the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord here in Psalm 2 just comes from raw power. It's right there. God's installed his king. You better kiss this king and do homage or else. It's right there, Psalm Psalm 2. But for us, we have much more about how God produces the fear of the Lord in us, which is true wisdom. How does he do it? Well, he does something quite remarkable. He shows us what this king is like in real life. The Gospels show us this king in action. And what is he like? Is he raw power? Does he just come and demand and sit on a throne? Does he rule with a scepter and with mighty armies? And does he threaten us and command us to obey in that way? Interesting. Because the goal is to produce the fear of the Lord in you, isn't it? It's interesting that in the Bible, we have the fear of the Lord being produced. But it takes place through a servant king. It happens in us because this king is willing to bow himself and wash the disciples' feet. And Peter says, no way, I, you're not going to wash my feet. Peter's, the subtext is, I, I don't like 
being ministered to. I don't like having to rely on someone else. I can wash my own feet, thank you. And then Jesus counsels him in John 13, unless I wash you, you will have no part in me. You will not have my refuge. I have to wash you, Peter. If I, then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. It is a servant. It's a kingdom built with servanthood. Isn't it interesting? And then Peter catches on. I understand now that I need your washing, not just my feet, my whole body. Meaning this. I see my great rebellion and I see that you are the one who's come for me the rebel and so God establishes the fear of the Lord in us through love he is a king who could have come in the way of Psalm 2 and he ultimately will come in the way of Psalm 2 but now in the gospel age he comes as a servant And he reaches our hearts. And ultimately, the fear of the Lord is established. The key key is that he reaches our hearts through servanthood. So, here's the, uh, the takeaway, and then we're done. Are you spending a lot of time just sort of trying to outmaneuver in your little kayak? Are you just kind of paddling fast? And there's a lot of threats out there. And you just find yourself in a hyper-planning mode. And you're just negotiating things. And, and there's, there's no peace. Does that describe what's happening in you? You can say that, 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 that it's what it's like in my heart. Let me ask you, though, can you be drawn into the place of safety where, where you can find a refuge in this awesome and powerful king and see his power being poured out for you and rescuing you and something that you can, you can find your peace the peace that you need. He's actually after your heart, but he's seeking to reach your heart by by being with you, by being among you. In the uh, smash hit Downton Abbey, there's an Irishman named Branson, and he is uh, the chauffeur of of these uh, folks. And uh, Branson has a lot of plans about his life. And the one thing, because he comes from a lower class upbringing, the one thing Branson will not do is he will not receive someone else's service. And you see, that may look like humility, but in the first season of Downton Abbey, we learn that Branson actually must receive the service of others 
in order to dignify the servants. Doesn't sound right, but Matthew Crawley, the future heir, actually trains Branson to, to say it's okay. It's okay to be served. And much of the drama that's un, unfolding in Branson's life is that will he accept the service of someone else? Psalm 2 is about pride. Psalm 2 is about clenched fist pride that says, I will make my own future on my own terms, and it will not include God's installed king. Let's praise God that he has begun to work and to change our determined desire to not be served and to receive the service of Jesus for you. God will be well pleased. Let Jesus serve you. Let him wash you, all of you. Let's pray. Lord, help us to not have our own lives come crashing down against your just kingdom. Help us take refuge in your good Jesus that you sent. Help us, Lord, to be served by him and to be raised with him and to find our future with him. Father, thank you that we have him as our refuge. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.